This morning we continue on in the sermon series on the book of Judges. We're wrapping up Judges chapter 16, and we'll be looking at verses 18 through 31 this morning, and the title of this morning's sermon is The Death of Samson. The Death of Samson. Now, from the the viewpoint of an ancient Israelite, what we've seen so far in Samson's story has been comedic. They have seen what are wonderful victories over their enemies and their oppressors, the Philistines, which from this point on kind of become the arch enemies of Israel and the people of God through much of the remainder of Scripture. But now this comedy of Samson turns tragic. And the strong man of Judges is about to be brought down. And as we've seen Samson in uh, this account, he's been going down the whole time when he goes down to Philistine territory, leaving his land, his people, and even his vows as a Nazarite separated to God, leaving those behind. In this part of the story we come to now, actually, I find it to be heartbreaking. Samson is looking for something. He's looking for love, and he thinks he has found it. And it reminds me, because I'm old enough, of a big hit song in the 1980s at the beginning of the urban cowboy um, era, if you guys remember that. Mickey Gilley wrote a song. Well, he didn't write the song. He sang this song looking for love in all the wrong places. And that's kind of what um, Samson is doing here. And this tragedy really begins when the talk of love and heart start to pop up in the conversation. We saw previously how this was starting to happen back in, uh, in verse 15 of chapter 16. Delilah says to Samson, you recall, we talked about this last week, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? And then two verses later, he, Samson, told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall be Come weak and be like any other man. Now, this vow of a Nazarite, lest we misunderstand it, is ordinarily not a secret thing. It was something that was obvious to the community around the person who who took the vow. Yet Samson has not previously mentioned this to anyone, as far as the text tells us, until now. Until he's with this woman of the night in the land of the Philistines. Then he starts to talk about his vow. He's willing to divulge it and the secret of his great strength. And it's really odd when you think about it. Samson's physical strength, physical strength being a masculine attribute, and his long hair, which is a feminine attribute, are oddly matched, aren't they? What is it with this? Well, the great English poet John Milton may have been onto something. He wrote this poem about Samson called Samson's, 
Samson Agonistes, which in English means Samson the champion. And in it, Samson has this lament. He's, he's crying out. And this is what Milton writes. And of course, this is just poetic imagination here. This is not revealed uh, scripture. This is not good God's word. But I think it's a, a great idea. And this is what Milton thinks. Here's Samson speaking in the poem. God, when he gave me strength to show withal how slight the gift was, hung it in my hair. But peace, I must not quarrel with the will of highest dispensation, which herein happily had ends above my reach to know. Suffices that to me strength is my bane and proves the source of all my miseries. In other words, Milton sees what's going to happen here, that, that this, the sign of the strength is something that could easily be lost. We've all lost hair, you know, either to a barber or to, you know, age or, or, or what have you. Um, it's not permanent, permanent, is it? So now let's go to our new text, where we're going to start today, Judges 16, 18. And I'm going to read that. Please follow along with me in your Bibles. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. So here we're back to heart, aren't we? And the Bible frequently speaks of the heart. We've all heard this in Scripture. We've come across it. We've heard it preached. We've heard it in, in, in uh, proverbial sayings. Um, and now we find heart center stage in this drama between Samson and Delilah. His heart, Samson's heart, is centered on his love for her. Now, the text treats this love as true love, not lust or a, a momentary physical attraction. So we must take that for what it's worth, what the... What the, the the text is telling us, and not read something in it, knowing how Samson has acted and 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 his uh, you know peculiarities. We could say in the past, and here we also see Delilah's heart revealed, although she doesn't speak of it directly. But when she speaks of Samson telling her all his heart, meaning the secret of his strength, we should realize. That's her view of his heart, not his. His strength is not close to his heart. Her heart, though, is focused on the secret of his strength. Why? Because it's connected to where her heart truly lies, and that's money. That's the great wealth that she is going to receive for betraying this man who loves her. So this, this heart in the Bible, it's interesting. <clears throat> Harper Collins Bible Dictionary says there are 814 references to the human heart in the Bible. Now, now that's a lot. And compare that to, there's only 26 that talk about the heart of God. There's 11 that speak of the heart of the sea. Um, but very few, there, there are a couple of these references to the human heart speak of the organ that's within our body. And the Hebrew word we translate for heart, the Hebrew word lev, 
means the middle of or the center of something. So the heart in biblical thought is not speaking of this righteous guiding inner self, unlike what we often find in popular usage, such as, you know, follow your heart or to your own heart be true. Actually, Jesus, for example, indicates that we commit murder and adultery in our hearts. And although people are commanded, commanded to love God with all their heart, according to our Lord, Christ tells us, but out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander, a far cry from loving the Lord our God with all our heart. The point then is that the heart seems to represent what we might call the true self, which is what we are apart from any pretending, pretense, or hypocrisy. In, in a positive sense, though, to, to believe in one's heart is to, is to truly, really believe. And to forgive from the heart is to truly forgive. To obey from the heart is to be truly obedient. Thus, references to God knowing the human heart refer to God's awareness of an individual's essence, what we're all about, truly. We can see this in the moral of God's unlikely selection of David in the first book of Samuel, where we're told the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And the heart is often secret, unknown to others, and, and really, we, we must admit, often unknown to ourselves as we go through daily activities. But there are times when our heart is revealed to us, and sometimes we're surprised, maybe even shocked by it. But the prophet Jeremiah, he wasn't. He tells us in his book, in, in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, this answer of understanding is revealed to Jeremiah. In the next verse, it's given to him. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Just to be clear, that's not good news. But there is good news. The Lord changes hearts. Ezekiel 36.26, we read, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The Lord explained to the prophet Ezekiel that idolatry and worship of pagan gods brought about hard hearts. This brought dirt and filth uncleanliness into the innermost part, the center of God's people. And it's as if the heart became calcified and no longer worked as designed. So who does your heart belong to? Should it not be to the one who knows it better than even you do? He who knows your heart as once that of a child of the devil, and then by his love and might, now as his precious son or daughter, 
That's where your heart belongs, brothers and sisters. And friends, if you do not yet know Christ, that applies to you too. Your heart is not yet there, but it should be. And this brings us to the first point, point number one. Only the Lord God can pluck the human heart out of its depravity. Only the Lord God can pluck the human heart out of its depravity. Human beings have an astounding ability to adapt to their surroundings. Things that are initially startling to us and uncomfortable, maybe even painful, soon are not even noticed anymore. I think of a time when I was much younger and I moved into this house in an old part of Upland. It was near Euclid, just off Euclid. And um, across the street was uh, other houses, and behind these houses were the railroad tracks. You couldn't really see the railroad tracks from this house. So the <laughs> first night in this little tiny old house, in the middle of the night, I am blasted awake by a freight train coming right through the bedroom. At least that's what it sounded like. I think I did a backflip out of the bed. I couldn't breathe. I was, I was so startled by what happened. Um, and it was so loud. Of course, you know, coming up to Euclid, the engineer had to blow the horn and everything. And boy, he loved blowing that horn. But really, it didn't take me that long to get to the point where I didn't even hear the trains anymore. It didn't wake me up. That's our ability to adapt. So in a fallen world, fallen people do not notice the fallenness around them. But we think about it, how can God bring his elect out of a fallen world, in a, out of a fallen state in a fallen world, while they remain in the fallen world? It really kind of boggles the mind. It staggers our imagination if we think about it. Well, Look at how God has ordered the world. Look at the things he's put in the world, in his creation. And I think we can see signs of this, of how God takes us out of a fallen world, yet lets us remain in it, but changes us. When we see the bright shining stars in the darkest night, when we taste the sweetest fish from the salty sea, when we touch the glistening pearl that emerges from the black recesses of the oyster resting in murky waters, it gives us an idea, an inkling, if you will, of how God brings these magnificent things out of what just seems to be darkness and perhaps even emptiness to us. Such is the power of God to restore our course of expectation and surprise us with restoration and redemption. Back to our story in Judges, verses 19 through 20. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. 
So Delilah puts him to sleep on her lap like an infant. A picture of helplessness, if ever there was one. And the narrator has painted this picture of trust by Samson in this woman who he loves and has shared his heart with. And in a sense, a woman to whom he has given up everything for. And while he slumbers blissfully, she calls in an accomplice who brings her the razor. Now, Dr. Barry Webb, in his commentary on Judges, notes that the Hebrew grammar indicates that Delilah herself shaved Samson's locks off, which just adds to what's going on here. What we see here is treachery of a level that is almost unthinkable. But we're human. We know human treachery. We've experienced it. We've lived it. And God has forgiven us if we've engaged in it ourselves. One commentator observes, the lap of Delilah proved too strong for the heart of Samson. And what a thousand Philistines could not do was done by the ensnaring influence of a single woman. And lest one accuse God's words of bias against women, remember that the greatest incident of treachery in all of human history was committed by a man, by one of the members of Christ's inner band who betrayed the Lord, and turned the Lamb of God over to his enemies, those seeking to kill him. But in the story of Samson, if all this wasn't enough, as the now shorn Samson still sleeps, Delilah does to him what the Philistines have long desired to do. We're told in in the, the second part of verse 19, she began to torment him. And this this word Torment, in Hebrew, anat, um, could also mean humiliate, to oppress, to make suffer. It's not a good thing. It's not what you do to a baby sleeping in your lap. And then the next part of verse 19, we're told, and his strength left him. Samson's strength is from the Lord God, make no mistake. His hair is the visible sign of this gift. The uncut state of his hair is a reminder of this gift. In the specific, very specific religious practices given to Israel by the Lord God, Yahweh, we find a purposeful requirement of intentionality. In worship of the Lord God, Hebrews, the Israelites, could not be happenstance in what they did. They had to think through so many things. They, it, it made them keep the Lord God foremost in their minds, in their daily lives. So, so think of this, this, the heaviness of Samson's seven locks weighing upon his head as a reminder of him being set apart for and by Yahweh. So his hair is not magical. None of us no matter how long we grow our hair, are not going to be given physical strength unless God grants us the gift of physical strength for his purpose. 
Samson's hair, as I said, is just a sign of this. And in verse 20, we're told Samson awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But unlike with the bowstrings and the new ropes and the weaver's loom, there's nothing for him to shake himself free of. Because now he is free of his Nazarite vow. But Samson sought after freedom, this thing which he's been chasing. It's kind of been unsaid, but he seems to be fleeing from this, not wanting it. So this freedom that he's sought, he's obtained, but it's illusionary. He's not really free, no. He still has enemies, and now he has no more power to resist them than a normal man would. And we're told he did not know the Lord had left him. Why did the Lord tell Israel this story? Why did Israel need to hear this? Why do we need to hear this? Why did Israel and us need to remember both the comedy and tragedy of Samson? The tragedy being all the more tragic because of the comedy that came before it. Here's the key to the account of Samson. Samson is a mirror of Israel. When we see Samson, we should see Israel, the people of God as a whole, and understanding the New Testament revelation that we are spiritual Israel. Israel, like Samson, is chosen by Yahweh for a specific purpose. And neither are chosen because of something they themselves did. They're blessed beyond all others in the world because of the Lord. Yet, Samson and Israel abandon the Lord. This brings us to our second point, point number two. Idolatry results in spiritual blindness. Idolatry results in spiritual blindness. Whether it's Israel with the Baals and the Ashtaroth, or Samson and Philistine women, both seem to assume that Yahweh will always be there for them, waiting in the wings like a jilted lover, ready at a moment's notice to take back the unfaithful wanderer. And this principle applies in our present age also. Even though pagan temples aren't usually called such in this day and age, they're still around us. We can convert many places to houses of idol worship. And people do. Because as Calvin said, the heart is an idol factory. We can take anything and very, very quickly turn it into an idol. Even that which is given by God to us as a blessing can be transformed into an idol. Our children, our family, our work, our possessions, our hobbies, things we are blessed to have can become millstones around our neck if we put them before the Lord in our lives. Then we have made them idols. And that, beloved, is wrong. That's a sin. 
the Lord should come first in all things. Verses 21 through 22 read, And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. It's like the Philistine jailers aren't paying close enough attention, are they? But here, (laughs) there really is heavy irony going on. Samson's wild career began, remember, when he saw a woman and demanded to have her because she was, quote, right in his eyes, end quote. Now he's lost those eyes because of a woman and sees nothing. And what Samson did to Gaza is now being done to him. Sightless Samson, like gateless Gaza, has become violated and defenseless. Samson is drugged back to Gaza in chains and put to work like an animal, grinding grain in a mill. Samson forsake the gift given him by Yahweh as part of his Nazarite vow. And as a result, what we can see here is he's lost his humanness. There's examples of this elsewhere in the Bible of God taking a prideful man full of hubris and reducing him to animal state. It's like, you think you are something, O man? I will make you as a beast of the field. This brings us to our third point, point number three. One way Satan draws souls to sin is by leading them to choose wicked company. One way Satan draws souls to sin is by leading them to choose wicked company. Samson chose very badly. He did the opposite of what the Bible commands us to do. We read in Ephesians 5.11. Here we are commanded, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And then in Proverbs 4.14 and 15, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away and pass from it. Pass on. These are express commands of God to shun wicked company. And as you've heard many preachers say, it's not because God doesn't want you to have fun. It's because God loves you, because God cares for you. And as a loving, caring father, he knows what is best for you and what is not, what is harmful. Wicked company is very infectious and thus very dangerous. Just look at how the wicked are described in Scripture, and it gives us insight. They're described as lions for their fierceness, bears for their cruelty, dragons for their hideousness, dogs for their filthiness, wolves for their cunning. God also labels them as scorpions, vipers, thorns, briars, thistles, and brambles. Would you dwell amongst those? Or stubble, dirt, chafe, dust, dross, and smoke? 
Would you stake eternity upon those things? Point number four. Failure of focus results in failure of mission. Failure of focus results in failure of mission. Samson has his eyes continually focused in the wrong place on the wrong things. What does the Lord decree that be done? His eyes are gouged out of his head. His recovery from his scrapes that we've seen in the past is solely due to God's rescuing grace. Samson doesn't realize this then. So this is a cautionary tale that we're reading, that, we're, that you're listening to, that we ought not to let our focus wander. The focus of the Christian is to always be on the cross of Christ at all times. This idea reminded me when, when I was a younger man, <clears throat> I was... Uh, Eventually, I was sent to a motor school to learn how to be a motorcycle officer. I had ridden motorcycles since I was about 12 years old. I thought I knew how to ride motorcycles. They very quickly showed me I knew nothing about riding motorcycles. But they were going to teach me how to ride motorcycles, and they taught me well. One of the things they they hammered into us, do not look where you do not want to go. Look where you want to go. In a tight turn, we had to learn how to, how to lock handlebars and turn in the tightest circles possible, then reverse it, go back the other way, so on and so forth. Day after day, sunrise, the sunset. If you look, and you may know this, if, if, if you were a diver in, in, uh, in school, you, you learned this early on, you go where you look. If you look at the ground, you're going to crash. You're, you're going to drive the motorcycle right into the ground. You look up on the horizon, you keep your focus where you want to head, and that's where you go. It's almost as if, by magic, the motorcycle goes there. It's the same for our life, and our, our focus is not just on the horizon that we see of this world. Our focus is on an eternal horizon. We must realize we have eternity in front of us. That's where we're going, into eternity. There's important things that we're going to do, that we're going to accomplish, that we're going to encounter between here and there. But you don't want to be focusing on those things. Yes, we need to have what's called situational awareness. We know what's going on in our life and we address those things. But always is the focus of eternity and the cross of Christ. Verses 23 and 25 of Samson's account. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. Okay, there's there's some stuff going on here under the surface. It's under the surface. 
this god, Dagon, his name uh, is probably linked, although the etymology is not really clear on Dagon, and you have scholars that will argue different points, and, and they all have, have a certain amount of merit. But it's likely linked to the Hebrew word for grain, you know, the crop you grow in the field. So then Dagon is linked to the fertile grain-growing sections of the Philistine coastline. Now, this makes perfect sense. So Dagon is really a grain god. And it's not a coincidence that Samson encounters the Dagon cult in Gaza. Note the irony. Samson, who tore off Gaza's bars and gates, is now imprisoned in Gaza behind bars and gates. The destroyer of the Philistine grain fields slaves away at grinding their grain now. And then he's brought before the Philistine grain god, whose harvest he set afire with foxes. The interesting thing about temples, so now we're in a temple, Temple of Dagon. Temples in the ancient Near East often doubled as sanctuaries for wrongdoers until their fate was determined. Now the Philistines have, are making Samson, the judge of Israel, stand between the central pillars of their temple. They're mocking him. You're a judge? <laughs> Okay, judge us now, judge. They're having fun with him. Little realizing that their judgment is about to come from a greater judge than this mutilated man from the tribe of Dan. The Philistines here have made a fatal mistake. Reading on in verses 26 through 30, And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all this strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. And part, see, part of the, the entertainment that the Philistines are having here is seeing the strong man of Israel led around by a young boy. What humiliation they're putting him through. They're just having such a, a great time with this. But things are not always as, as they appear. It's actually Samson who's leading the young boy. He's instructing the boy where to lead him. And in the context of the story as a whole, God is leading everyone. God has determined what's to occur from the very beginning. The narrator tells us this at the very beginning of the Samson account with the announcement of Samson's birth. He shall begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. 
And then when Samson goes off on his first adventure into Timnah, we are told he, that is the Lord God, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So the great sacrifice that the Philistines planned is going to turn out much different than what they expected. And Samson's prayer now, did you notice it's addressed to the covenant maker God, the Lord God, Yahweh? It contains these words only this once. Samson is acknowledging how little he has a right to expect from God. But at the same time, Samson is appealing to precedent. God has strengthened him at moments of great need in the past, when the lion attacked him in the vineyard of Timnah, when he faced the military unit of the Philistines on Jawbone Hill. And if Yahweh will do so just once more, Samson's saying he will never trouble God again. It's the language of a beggar. It's what this man has been reduced to. But the plea that God would remember him is is much more than just this. Remembrance is a very significant motif in the Old Testament. Remembrance in these types of Old Testament passages means being faithful to a relationship by fulfilling the obligations entailed in it. Samson's cry is an appeal to God to act on the basis of the special relationship that he, the Lord, had established with Samson even before he was born as setting him apart as a Nazarite of God. And there's grim irony, again, in the fact that Samson should invoke this relationship now given that he's shown so little regard for it previously. He just toyed with it before. Really, Samson had effectively forsaken his Nazarite ship in favor of the relationship with Delilah. And that relationship led to his hair being cut off that in turn led to his present distress in the temple of Dagon. But we're given a big clue, aren't we, in verse 22, where we're told, but the hair of his head began to grow again. No one else is apparently noticing this, but the narrator lets us know that the Lord God is not done with Samson. We know the secret sign of his hair. And Samson now dares to hope that Yahweh has not abandoned him like he has abandoned Yahweh in the past. Let's not be mistaken. Samson does not utter a cry of repentance here, which he should have if we were writing the story ourselves and wanted to make a good, perfect ending to it. It's not a noble request, really, that Samson expresses. All Samson wants is vengeance for the personal wrongs he has suffered. But God wants something more. So there's a joining together of these two desires. What Samson wants for his own reasons, God wants for other, greater reasons. So Samson's prayer is answered. And Samson brings the house down on the mall. Samson decapitates the Philistine leadership. Unless we be dismayed by this violence, which to our modern minds being far away from being oppressed by an evil pagan people, 
well, anyway, um, maybe, there's, maybe there's echoes of that now. Um, the Philistines were a remarkably evil culture. We shouldn't shed a tear over them. <clears throat> Later in history, Roman historians would remark on their cruelty and barbarity. These people whom the Romans and the Greeks called the Phoenicians, which were the Philistines, engaged frequently and with great fervor and enjoyment in human sacrifice, according to ancient historians, especially the sacrifice of children. So the Lord righteously decreed that these evil people should die thusly. We need to understand that. And our last point, point number four. This applies to Samson, not the Philistines. The point being this. Being cast down by the Lord does not mean being cast off. Being cast down by the Lord does not mean being cast off. Brothers and sisters, are you concerned with failing the Lord? Even though blinded and leaning on the pillars of Dagon's temple, you can still call out to the Lord. We see this in Samson's account. God's servants are not limited to those deemed respectable in the eyes of other sinners. Isn't it? kind of laughable when we get that, in head, that idea in our heads that sinners are the one to judge other sinners in whether the Lord can use them or not. That is the height of pride and hubris. We ought to take care that we're not cast out into the field as a wild beast for thinking so highly of ourselves. No matter what you have done, no matter who you have been, When the Lord makes you his, he will change you and he will use you beyond what you think you are capable of and even worthy of. No one is ever so far gone that they are beyond the reach of God's hand. We're seeing this in the account of Samson. I want you to, to realize that. Many are the saints plucked from the midst of Satan's darkest precincts and brought into the kingdom reeking of brimstone. That's a marvelous thing. To be made clean by being washed in the blood of Christ removes all of these stains. It as if Satan never had you. It as if you have never even smelled a whiff of brimstone, much less had it permeating your hair and your clothes. It is all taken away. And if you call out to the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue you, you shall be rescued. He will not fail you. He will not reject you as not worthy or good enough. Our Lord rejects no one that desires salvation. 
the desire, that desire for salvation, that desire for Christ marks you as one of his, by his sovereign will. That's what's difficult for us to understand, but that is what God reveals to us in his word. Do not think, if you hear Christ beckoning to you, do not wonder, oh, am I one of the elect? That is not a question for us to ask. Our response is to respond to our Lord. That is what he desires. That is our role. Then the last verse of the account of Samson. Then his brothers and all of his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. So in Samson's account, we see that the Lord always remembers those whom he has chosen to be his. Our salvation, we know, we, we know this very clearly. Our salvation cannot be gained through moral perfection. Scripture is very clear on that. Though, yes, it is hard for us to accept that truth. But let's turn that coin over on the other side. That being true, then our salvation cannot be lost through moral imperfection. Scripture is very clear on that. Again, it's hard for us to accept except that we must because it's God's truth. And although the Lord does not reject his sheep who stray, he does chastise them. If we stray from the path the Lord would have us be on, he will discipline us. And brethren, he may discipline us severely. It is not in our interest to stray from where he would have us be. And the death of a saint can be the means by which the Lord preserves them. Not punishing. The death of the saint is not punishment. It's removal to a place of protection and safety. God may take us to a place where we cannot sin any longer to protect us. That's his love. So we should never think that someone amongst the saints who has gone on and somehow has been punished for a sin. That is simply not it at all. And Samson, through a very hard process, was brought back into his relationship with the Lord God. And admittedly, from a human perspective, it was not a perfect relationship. Samson, to the end, would not let go of his own desires, would he? His prayer included that his desire of vengeance be satisfied. But it was enough for Samson to fulfill the role Yahweh had for him. He began to save Israel from the house of the Philistines. And in the New Testament... It's kind of a hard thing. We find Samson, this very flawed man, who, who really seems to be a cautionary tale more than anything else. Don't, here's Samson, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Because Samson did these things. 
But we find him in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, in what we call the hall of faith don't we? How, do we? how are we to understand that? It's kind of, remember the, the judge, Yephthah? And he's in there too. And wow, what does this mean? How do we unpack it? This is important to know. Why? In faith, remember, the author of Hebrews defines the, what faith is, what he's talking about in the first verse of Hebrews 11. He defines it as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And Samson is listed in verse 32, and then we find in the next verse, verse 33, how his faith was acted out, what the actions were that were connected to his faith. And we are told that it is through faith that he conquered kingdoms. The kingdoms conquered, in Samson's case, were the Philistines, the beginning of the conquering of the Philistines. The other judges listed fought against other kingdoms. These are kingdoms of darkness. These are kingdoms ruled in the spiritual sense by Satan. These are kingdoms that were opposed to God and his people. These were kingdoms that God decreed would rise for a time, but would fall. Samson's victories over the Philistines, both at Jawbone Hill and Gaza in the Temple of Dagon, were God-given victories. The two crowning moments of Samson's career, and the only two places in the entire account where he cries out to Yahweh. We need to see that. How do, we, how do we reconcile this, though, about Samson being in Hebrews, Hebrew 11's review of the Old Testament people of faith, especially given the climax of the hall of faith and the achievement of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, where we read in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Christ is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the crowning achievement of what it means to be a faithful person. So these Old Testament faithful listed in Hebrews 11 were forerunners in some sense of Jesus, the perfectly faithful one. But being similar to Jesus in faith, understand this, does not extend to other qualities. Samson was utterly, utterly unlike Jesus in his character and motivations. That's that's very obvious to us. And the same is true to varying degrees of the other Old Testament faithful that are listed in Hebrews 11. In fact, the term applied to Jesus, the perfecter, implies that even in the matter of faith, those who came before Jesus were lesser than he. And we know this has to be true theologically, right? But we can miss these things sometimes, and I want you to see that. And in the same way, we should notice other points of similarity between the broad structure of Samson's life and that of Christ. The enunciation by a divine messenger of a remarkable conception. A state of holiness or being set apart from everyone else. Being endowed with the Spirit. Rejection by his own people. Handed over to his enemies 
by the leaders of his people. Mocking and scorn suffered at the hands of the enemies. A calling which is consummated in death. A death by which the God of the oppressors, in this case Dagon, is defeated. In the case of Christ, the skull of the serpent is crushed. And these deaths, Samson and Jesus, laid the foundation for a deliverance that will be fully realized in a day to come. We've tasted a good portion of the fulfillment. We enjoy that, and we look forward to its completion when our Lord returns. None of these things should be brushed aside. The fact is, when we read the story of Samson in the context of the Bible as a whole, which really is the manner in which God gives it to us, right? We, we discover the most unlikely person in the most unlikely of places in a story about a time when there was no king in Israel. And this man who did what was right in his own eyes. These are intimations, clues, foreshadowings, hints of what is to come. A true and eternal king who will put everything right that is wrong. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for the salvation you've brought to us. Father, we give thanks for your word and the stories that we find and the messages in them. Father, they're, they're marvelous and they, they strike at our hearts, Lord. They awaken emotions in us. Father, we, each one of us, have a, a desire, a lifelong desire to be loved to be cherished, and often we do not find that fulfillment in this world. We, we find rejection. We find the opposite of love, neglect. Father, we find love in you. You bring love to us. You, your Son, and the Holy Spirit love us beyond what we can understand, Father. We give thanks for that, Father. And remind us to turn to you at those times when we feel unloved, because we know we are loved, truly. Father, we pray for blessing upon the baptism that is shortly to follow. Father, we give thanks again for our sister Natalie and for her loving family. Father, they are such an important part of the brethren here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. Father, we pray that you guide Natalie in the days and years to come in her life. Father, we pray that you guide the Ortega family in decisions that must be made, Father. And we are so thankful that they will always be within your loving arms and under your protection. Father, bless the rest of this day. Bless the quarterly gathering that's going to happen this evening. We pray for the safety of the saints driving to Hemet and those driving back. Father, protect them. We give thanks and we glorify you in everything we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.